My generation, there was a revolution going on for freedoms against traditional ideals. Where the baby boomers were more concerned with success, I think that the Generation X, their priority was to enjoy life a little bit more. So the Xers are caught in there in kind of a nondescript, laid back, nothing wild going on except in their music. The technology was coming out when they were mature enough to really understand what technology could mean for them. I don't think back then they had like the Safari app. And so I think you use dictionaries and regular calculators. They are technologically savvy, but they also have appreciation for meaningful relationships that can be had outside of technology. My generation was looking for more and seeking everything and trying to find answers for themselves. It was a shift in a mentality of how to live life. I just love that little girl on there, don't you? I, I just think, you know, the, in the Old Testament it says that a child shall lead them, and uh, and I and I think she's leading us well. I just love her statement. I actually love all the the different generations that have contributed to what we show you each week in setting up this series. If you are visiting with us here or at chapel venue, uh, Cactus or Mountain Valley, uh, we're in the middle of a series that's really been a great ride for our church. We're taking a look at the five different generations that exist in culture today, that exist in this church today, and we're taking each week to focus on and honor each generation and then even ask ourselves, what is the Bible? What does God say uh, to a particular generation. And one of the things that we've been doing each week is having that generation stand. I shared in week one that the two ways that we can respond to the generations around us, you guys might remember this, is through honor and blessing. You honor the generation that has come before you, those who are older than you, and then you bless the generation that has come after you. And if we could do that, man, we could have the unity that Jesus talks about. And so each week we have had that generation stand. Xers, as we're going to talk about here in a second, they get the raw end of the deal on so many ways. And even the way that demographers have broken it down, they've tried to truncate the years of the Xers. So we know that they began in 1965, because that's when the last boomer, that's when the baby boom ended in 64. But, you know, whether they, they gave anywhere between 1980 and 1984 as the start of the millennials and the end of the uh, X generation. So I, I've been using 18 years. I think it's biblical as a generation uh, in general, if you will. So if you were born between 1965 and let's say 1982 or 1983, uh, I'd like you to stand right now. Campuses and venues, you as well. Generation X. Wow, look at all this. Did you guys stand? Let's show our honor and blessing to this generation. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you, guys. It was really funny. This was in the last service, too. You guys tended to be on the, the outside here, which I think is a wonderful image for how you feel. And uh, so we're going to make sense of that today. About, uh, oh, two months ago, as I was following the election, I, uh, I, I was looking at the polls, and for the last two months I've been looking at the polls, and I had prepared myself on this Sunday to challenge us in my pastoral prayer to pray for Hillary Clinton as our new president. 
And some people would say, ugh, do that and resist that and what have you. And, and I was going to challenge you that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible commands you, and I'm saying commands, it's in the imperative tense, to pray for your leaders. Ironically, back then, that meant awful people like Nero, uh, you know, if you know anything about church history, not a nice guy, uh, they were commanded to pray for him. And so I was going to say, we need to pray for our new government. Ironically, when Donald Trump won on Tuesday night, um, my immediate thought was this Sunday, you know what I'm going to do? We're going to, boy, you guys are asleep. We're going to pray for Donald Trump because God asks us to pray for our leaders. So I prepared a special blessing and prayer uh, for this uh, new government that he'll be bringing in. And so would you all bow with me here and at our campuses and venues as we go to our time in the Word. Father God, um, this is a very tumultuous time in our country, a very divided time in our country. And God, there's not just a, a disagreement on values, but even on the direction that our country should go with and how we should go in that direction. And yet one thing we all share, Lord, is a history with America, a history with the United States. And I think we can all agree we really do love our country. And Lord, we're gathered here today as Scottsdale Bible Church because we also love you. And Father, we want to pray a couple of things uh, for our country and for Donald Trump and, and Mike Pence. First, God, we want to pray for our country in general. When we see the division and the heartache and the difficulty and the divide, we pray, God, that you would bring a healing that you would bring a unity, that you would bring, Lord, a, a sense of wholeness and oneness back to our country. God, one of the things that has always marked America has been a, a sense that we have a, a unity about us, given our history, that even in our differences we can latch on to. God, may, may that be that which happens as we move forward. God, would you bring that kind of, of coming together for our country? Father, we would pray as well that as uh, there is now a transition team in place and as Donald Trump and Mike Pence and, and, and upwards of 4,000 new appointments are going to be happening over the next couple of months, God, we pray that you would give skill and wisdom, insight, understanding, and compassion uh, to Trump and to his team. And we pray, God, that as Christians have prayed for thousands of years, no matter who's in government, God, would you uh, cause them to govern rightly? God, you are, you are providential, you are sovereign, you are the king of all kings. And so we pray, God, that you would have your way, even with Donald Trump, and that, God, you would uh, give him a real sense of wisdom and how to govern rightly in this country that we love. Father, we do pray, uh, lastly, that you would bring revival to our country. Uh, God, no matter who is in office, we have learned from church history that you are not bound. Your Holy Spirit is always at work. And so, God, we pray that you would touch the hearts of the men and women around us, the children around us in this country, and draw them to your son, Jesus, and even use us, God, in that process. Lord, we turn to your word now, and as we do, we pray you give us wisdom and understanding as we talk about these very, very important generations that are in front of us and what your word might have to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and I hope we can all say together, amen and amen. Some of you know about this about me, some of you don't. I am a middle child, a middle child. I have an older sister, Katie, and a younger brother, Peter, and we're all rather close in age, and I'm in the middle. And I'm here to tell you today that in many ways, it's no fun being a middle child. 
It really isn't. And though it's very difficult for firstborns and for lastborns to understand this, the real struggle for many of us, not all, but many of us in being a middle child is that there are times where we feel unseen, marginalized, diminished, unappreciated, or as I would have argued even upwards of a decade or two ago, at times even feeling unloved. And the logic of why middle children feel that way is, is rather inarguable. I mean, it's pretty clear when you think about it. And that is that you have the firstborn, which studies show tends to be the high achiever, conscientious, reliable, rather responsible, generally speaking. And then you have the lastborn kid who tends to be spoiled, fun-loving, outgoing, the attention getter. We all know this and we love that. We dote on the lastborn. And the middle child sees this. The middle child sees the high achieving, bossy, older sister. And the middle child sees the spoiled, attention-getting younger brother and wonders, even when he or she is a little guy, what's my niche? What makes me unique? I get what makes Katie unique. I get what makes Pete unique. But I can remember thinking as a little guy, what do mom and dad see in me that makes me unique? What, what is my identity? What makes me me? And it really is the struggle of not all, but many middle children. We struggle being sandwiched in the middle of the family. And if you can understand this at all, even if it hasn't been your experience, then you're ready to understand the next generation in our series, what we call Generation X. Generation X. They're sometimes called baby busters, post-boomers, uh, or just Xers. They were the ones who were born from 1965, as I said earlier, to anywhere between 1980 and 1984. And it's really a generation that has struggled with what almost every article I've read in the last few months calls that middle child syndrome. You see, initially they were born, I mean, the initial thing we need to understand is that they were born in much smaller numbers than their big brother or big sister or little brother or little sister. Uh, there was anywhere between 46 million and 65 million Xers. And again, it's kind of a wide swatch, but again, we argue when they exactly stopped as a generation. But it doesn't really matter, because even if you take the 65 million number, that's compared to almost 80 million boomers and the same number of millennials. That's why they called them the baby buster, because the, the bust happened when it came to having a bunch of babies in 1965. Wouldn't you like to be known for that in your identity? And yet when it comes to Generation X, what makes it even worse is that every study we have finds that they tend to fall somewhere right between boomers and millennials in their thinking and in their behaving. And again, you'll see why this is important in a minute. There was a study done by the Pew Research Center just two years ago, did an exhaustive study on what Xers think and how they feel, and compared them to millennials and baby boomers. Let me share with you some of the results. You'll see a pattern developing here. At first, they looked at the percent that get married before the age 32. 48% of boomers get married before the age 32. 26% of millennials get married before the age of 32. And about 36% of Generation X, right in the middle. 
They looked at the percent who would call themselves religiously unaffiliated, not affiliating with any religion. Only 16% of boomers consider themselves religiously unaffiliated. 29% of millennials consider themselves religiously unaffiliated. 21% of busters. Again, right in the middle. I love this one. This is going to offend some of you. But the percent saying that they would rather have have bigger government with more services. 32% of boomers want bigger government with more services. 53% of millennials want bigger government with more services. Doesn't that do your heart good, Glenn? And about 40% of Gen X, again, right in the middle, want bigger government with more services. This one was meaningful. The percent that would describe themselves as a patriotic person. 75% of boomers said that that would describe them well, a patriotic person. 49% of millennials said patriotic would describe me well. 64%, right in the middle, uh, uh, again, of Generation X. This one you got to laugh at. The percent saying that they have shared a selfie on social media. Now, some of you in the chapel might not even know what a selfie is. So I'll explain it to you. A selfie is when you take your phone, which, by the way, might have a camera on it, and then you take a picture of yourself with the phone, and then you send it to somebody. It's called a a selfie. Even I knew that. This is hilarious. Nine percent of boomers have shared a selfie on social media. Nine percent. I I didn't even believe this. Only 55% of millennials say they've shared a selfie. Uh, And I thought, no way, you just don't want to admit it. 24%, again, right in the middle of Gen Xers, say they have shared a selfie. And so this leads really to the last thing in this statistical analysis here that, again, I thought was so revealing. They, they, They tried to study the percent then within that generation that would say their generation is unique. 58% of boomers say their generation is unique. 61% of millennials, we'll get to that next week, say their generation is unique. Less than half of Gen Xers say their generation is unique. And now we're getting to the core of the problem. The same research article summed it up this way. I kind of like this way of doing it. They said, and I quote, Gen Xers are a low-slung, straight-line bridge between two noisy behemoths. (laughs) And I think they're right. I I, I mean, that's generation, that's how they feel. I get it, I'm a middle kid. They got this loudmouth, materialistic, successful older brother, the boomer, and then they got this spoiled, coddled younger brother the millennial that's how they see it i'm not saying that that's how they see it and they wonder in the midst of that who am i they struggle for an identity within their generation an identity now watch this as a unique creation of god existing within a unique culture around them And that's what, and this is where we have to get to right now, gang. You see, given that, the fact that we're all made in the image of God and that we all grew up within a particular culture, here's the thing. You do then, as a generation, have a unique identity. You cannot help it. You're influenced by the culture around you. You're made in the image of God. And so it's never good to argue, I don't have an identity or you don't have an identity. It took me a couple years of therapy to realize that one, but you do. 
Even as a middle child, you have an identity. And Generation X, as we're going to look closely at it right now, I'm telling you, has a unique and amazing identity. They have characteristics that allow them to stand out in the sea of boomers and the sea of millennials. And as I thought about it over the years, it has hit me that Xers have at least, and I mean at least, three overriding general, generational characteristics that positively distinguish them from any other generation alive today. And I hope in the next 20 minutes as I walk you through these that these will become very meaningful to you as you understand the Xers in your life or if you are one, the generation you were born into. First, I would argue that Generation X are raw realists. They are raw realists. Here's the bottom line, gang. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, and you have to listen to the message if you weren't there to maybe get this, boomers were the recipients of the modernist hope with its emphasis on blind optimism and a hyped-up cultural hope. But when all this got dashed with the rise of AIDS and with Vietnam and the sexual revolution and a couple of recessions and a myriad of other cultural collapses, this ushered in, as we talked about, our postmodern world. And here's what you need to know. Xers were born and raised as the first generation of postmoderns. And with a dashed modernist hope in tow right behind them, they had no choice but to opt for raw realism concerning the nature of this fallen world that we live in. In fact, if you don't believe me, listen to how Douglas Rushkoff says it in his groundbreaking 1993 book, The Gen X Reader. He says, as a Xer himself, instead of getting free love, we got AIDS. We didn't believe the same kind of things as boomers. It was much harder to fool us. Fool us with what? With this whole idea, the $6 million man, remember that, that we can make it better, stronger, and faster, and then we can build heaven on earth, and, and all is good, it's going to be is good in front of us. No, no, Xers knew that's not going to work. That's not the world that we live in. Why do they know that? Because they were born in the midst of a dashed modernist hope, and things were crumbling culturally right around them. If you don't believe me, think about this. You know, Generation X was the first generation in America to ever see both of their parents go to work. That's why we call them latchkey kids. They also saw their parents divorce in record numbers. They experienced a cultural degeneration around them as we went from modernism to postmodernism with our hyped up hope to a massive disillusionment culture wide. They experienced less wealth creation than their boomer parents. They became much more self-reliant. And they became disappointed in and leery of big institutions. This will be important for us in a second here. Everything from government to religion to advertising to marketing. In short, add it all up. They became raw realists. For the first time in a few generations, they saw the world as it really was. Not always a friendly place, difficult to live in, and not always uh, as hopeful or optimistic as those around us might want to make it. Without even knowing it, they were agreeing with Ecclesiastes 1, verses 14 to 15. Look at this. He says, I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. 
You see, Generation X was born into a culture that was experiencing that right around them. And they were brought down to reality, but instead of running from it, they accepted it. You see, here's the problem we learn from the boomers. Miscalculating optimism can be very dangerous for a culture, amen? It can. If you're not wide-eyed about the world around you and just your pie-in-the-sky Pollyanna about everything, good luck with that one. And yet at the same token, being unnecessarily pessimistic is never healthy for the soul, right? Some of you live with people like that, and it's no fun. And the, and the Generation X came along and they said, you know, we're not going to be blindly optimistic because that didn't work. We're not going to be unnecessarily pessimistic. And they opted for wide-eyed realism. And I would argue that that's a good thing. It helped balance out some of the dangerous things that boomers fell into. And it helped set up, as we're going to see next week, the millennials. They were the ones who taught us a level of realism. And yet they didn't stop there. Not giving up on the fallen world around them, they became known as culture shapers in a way that you're going to see right now, in a way that would establish a pattern for generations to come. And this is the second overriding generational characteristic I want to share with you about Xers, and that is that they became digitally industrious. <laughs> digitally industrious. And this is an important one. Because they were the first generation, now watch this, to fully embrace the digital revolution, and they ushered it in with a passion that would help boomers embrace those changes, even though they're not taking selfies yet, and as well to help millennials embrace it as well. So I like how Anna Sophia Martin, in an article in Forbes a little while back, says it. I think this was profound. She says, Gen X became the undetected influencers of its younger and older generations. Talk about identity, guys. I, I like that phrase. I hope you can embrace this if you're Gen X. An undetected influencer. That's really what middle children do best. That Generation X was kind of a sleeper generation. Many people thought they were just a bridge generation. But when you look closely at the statistics, not at all. They were actually more entrepreneurial, more digitally industrious than either generation on either side of them. How do we know that? Well, in the same article, there was another quote there that I didn't believe when I first read it, so I tracked it down to its original source, and it was true. It's been done on a study that was very legitimate. This article cites that 55% of current startup founders are Gen Xers. Wow. 55% of current startup organizations, all you know all of them, I'm going to list some of them for you in a minute, were founded not by millennials, not by boomers, but by Generation X. Who are we talking about? Elon Musk, founder of Tesla. Jack Dorsey, one of the founders of Twitter and Square. Michael Dell, founder of Dell Computers. Laura Alber, the CEO of Williams-Sonoma, one of the highest paid women in the world today. You know what they all have in common? Generation X. Add to this the fact that some of the most successful actors and actresses are part of Generation X, like Kiefer Sutherland and Angelina Jolie, and you realize, this is my only point, guys, you realize that this is not an identity-less generation. Not at all. 
There's some things that Generation X have done in their raw realism, uh, digitally industrial, industrious focus that, that has responded to a postmodern world with a profound level of perspective and ingenuity that has done nothing but help boomers and millennials in their generation. And this then leads to a third, and at least for me, most profound defining characteristic of Xers, and that is that they are spiritually sensitive. They're spiritually sensitive. Now, now let's talk very candidly right now. Some of you who have Xers in your life are mildly pushing back right now in your mind saying, I don't think so. <laughs> and the reason you think that is because Xers, if you remember I said earlier, didn't flock to big, large institutions like boomers did. No, they're postmodern, so they're very leery and skeptical of institutions. They didn't buy into all the hype. And one of those institutions they've been skeptical about are churches. I saw this happening in the 1990s. It was actually hilarious. In the 1990s, there was a lot of church growth. We call it the church growth movement. But it mainly happened initially from boomers. And the reason that it happened is because I, I love boomers. I am one. But boomers are just, we can tend to be kind of shallow and glitzy and all hype-oriented. And we really can. And, and, and I saw it all through the 90s. A boomer would say to their neighbor, come to my church. We have a band. I mean, that's what they'd say. We got a band, and the pastor is really relevant, and we have this great topical series. You're not going to be bored like you used to as a kid, and, and our church is just great. And that's how we invited people to church. Forget about Jesus. <laughs> Forget about the Bible, things like that. We tried to sell them. Boomers are so good at selling people on things. We tried to sell them on church. And the reality is, is that Gen X saw that, and they weren't impressed with that at all. You see, here's what you need to understand about Gen X. Uh, they're more interested in Jesus than they are with Christianity as a movement. They're more interested in narrative stories than they are propositions, you telling them what to do. Which, by the way, is a good thing, because Jesus did most of his best work in story form. Uh, generation X is known for being a generation that desires community. They believe less in experts like the boomers did and more in learning from each other. And here's what I learned in the 90s. Churches that would approach them this way, I'm going to tell you a story in a minute. Churches that would approach them this way fared much better with them. If you treat an Xer like you do a boomer, you're going to fail miserably. You know how an Xer in the 90s would invite somebody to church? Again, because don't let, don't let them fool you. They are spiritually interested and sensitive. But an Xer would not say, come to my church, we have a band. An Xer would say this, you know, I'm really not into the church scene, but my coworker is a really cool dude, and he reads the Bible during lunch break. Can you believe that? And he's got this little study on Tuesday night in which he's helping all of us understand Jesus, and I'm really getting a lot out of it. Would you like to come to that with me? You see, that's the Generation X, community, small groups, even what is real. Remember that raw realism? That's what they're seeking. They're seeking a level of spirituality that doesn't get caught up into big mega churches, organizational structures, really slick programs, though they don't mind all that. But that's not what they're really after. See, you and I got really impressed with that. They said, no, we want streams of living water flowing in our soul, leading all the way to eternal life. By the way, that's what Jesus promises us. And that's what Generation X was interested in. Some of you don't realize this, but you know, the word authentic 
is used a lot now in church cultures, and it's really popular. You know, we say we want a, a community that's authentic. You know, we're looking for that which is real. Do you know who it was that first told us we should want that? You guessed it. It was Generation X. Boomers would resonate with that a lot. Boomers would say, yeah, we want what's real. But it was Generation X that put that in our minds. <laughs> It was them that said, you know, the things that you guys have been after all your lives. Remember our talk on boomers, you know, this idea of success and health and wealth and all those things. Those things let you down. So there's got to be something more to life. And we want something real. We want something that's meaningful to the soul. And that's what Gen Xers have been after. And it is true that they're a difficult generation to understand in that way. You know, the, the uh, original naming of them, Generation X, was coined by Douglas Copeland back in 1991. And the reason he gave them the, 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 the name Generation X is because the X signified, and I quote, the generation's random, ambiguous, and even contradictory ways. He said the X means that they can go this way or they can go this way. And a lot of people have faulted them for that. But the reason that they're that way, hopefully you can see this here today, is not because they're not spiritually interested. It's because they were raised in post-modernism. They were given a, a, a marching orders from birth on, because this is the mantra of post-modernism, that says there is no absolute truth. All is relative. You make your own truth. You make your own morality. That's what they were told. That's what our academic institutions still teach. That's what the culture around them seems to embrace. That's the battle that we're all engaged in. And, and Gen X was right smack dab in the middle of that battle. And so, of course, they're going to struggle with ideas of absolute truth. And, of course, they're going to struggle with relative morality because the culture around them is so crazy. What I'm impressed with is even in the midst of that struggle, they deeply remain committed to a spiritual approach to life. And though we're disappointed that they didn't come flocking back to church, <laughs> they still remain very open and interested in Jesus. Have you ever noticed that about culture today, gang? We always whine that our culture is, quote, not spiritual. Do we all understand that's really not true? I mean, even among millennials, what's changed is that our culture is not Christian which, by the way, is a bummer. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But that's different than saying that our culture, our post-Christian culture, is not spiritual. Almost every TV show I watch, have you ever noticed, has a real spiritual component to it. It's really messed up, but it's still spiritual. They believe in a different dimension. They believe that there is some higher power. They, they believe that there's more than just this physical, material universe. There's very few naturalists and humanists out there today. Most people are very interested still in spiritual things. It's just that they're pretty leery of Christianity and, and, and in that sense, many of them even Jesus. But never mistake that for a disinterest in spiritual things. Xers taught us that, that they're still very interested, that there's a spiritual realm and they're looking for that which is real. So when you add all this up, this idea of raw realism and digitally industrious and spiritually sensitive. My final question to you is, what do you think God would say to this generation? <laughs> what word from the Lord would we give to them? 
And as I thought about it over the last few months, I got to tell you, I kept coming back to a word, uh, where's Kathy, that God, Kathy Wilson, that God gave Israel uh, back in Israel's day. And I think it fits Gen X because this was given during a very difficult time in the history of Israel, one that was marked by a lot of moral relativism and a nasty cultural influence around them. It was given uh, right at the beginning of the exile years. And it's tucked away in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And it's actually a prophecy of what was going to come for Israel. And I'm going to argue even eventually in Jesus. And I think it's very apropos to Generation X. Let's check it out as we have a few minutes remaining here. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 6. Just follow along as I read. God is speaking. That's why you have a quote here. And God says, come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples and a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. And then Isaiah ends the quote of God, adds an editorial note here, still inspired by God, and he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Now, rather quickly, uh, notice three things going on in this passage. And, and as a quick prelude, this passage is what Bible experts call a prophetic image or, or a passage is using prophetic imagery of what is to come. Prophetic meaning it's going to come in the future. And imagery meaning that the things in here are not literal. They're pointing to something literal. And when you look closely at this passage, the three things that God is pointing to, the three things that God is pointing to are grace, community, and relationship. That's what he's offering Israel at that time. And I'm going to make the argument that it fits hand in glove with where Xers are today and what they're looking for. Notice first that he's offering grace. A quick look at verses 1 through 3 again. I put it in the yellow here. Show us this. This is where the imagery comes in. He says, come to me, all you who are thirsty. Do we all understand he doesn't mean physical thirst? <laughs> he doesn't mean you want Gatorade. What he means is that your soul is longing for something. You're thirsty inside. So he says, come to the waters. And again, he doesn't mean an actual well. He means a spiritual well. Come to God for the parching of your thirst. And then he says something very interesting. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Now, why would he say that? That seems kind of weird here. It would actually fit the gospel really well. One of the things the gospel will tell you is that we're all longing for Jesus. We all long to come home to God, but because of our sin that we are born with, we are separated from God, and no amount of human works, no amount of human ingenuity, no amount of trying hard on our own is going to bridge the gap between us and God. And so in a very real way, we don't have any money. 
We have no way to buy the things from God that we desperately need. That's what Isaiah is saying. And then he says, even if you did have the money, why would you spend it on what is not good for your soul? Why would you spend it on that which is not satisfied? And then watch this. He says, listen, listen. And then he's going to say, listen again, three times repeated. Listen to me. Because from me, you can eat what is good, the richest affair. And then let's finish up this verse here. So he says, come to me and listen, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Now that's obviously key. That's New Testament. And the faithful love that I promised originally to David. What's God saying here? Exers, listen up. He's saying, if you want what is real, if you want what is authentic, if you want to truly come home to God, you're right. It's not going to be found by just going to church. It's not going to be found in a well-run church program or a bunch of slick organizational structures. And it's certainly not going to be found in a band. You're right about that, Xers. You sniff that one out a mile away, good for you. But what God is saying is it's going to be found in me. It's going to be found in recognizing that there is a dissatisfaction in your soul that comes from your separation from God from birth. You've been longing for him all your life. You just haven't known it. And no amount of good works or human ingenuity or trying hard on your own is going to accomplish it. The only thing that will accomplish it is what my son Jesus came to do and bring for you. This is a prophecy of Jesus' time that Jesus came to bring us to God through faith and faith alone in him and his atoning work on the cross in which he bought you that bread. He bought you that access to God. He bought you the things that you had no money for. And the only thing that he wants you to do, did you catch it in this prophecy, is to come. Come and listen. Understand that he loves you and longs for relationship with you. And that when you come to him on those terms, we call it the gospel of grace, just believing and receiving who Jesus is, then you've come home to God. You see, that's the gospel. And I think Xers are more primed to receive that, that than almost any generation because they're looking for that which is real and that which makes sense. And then very quickly, because we're running out of time and I want to close with the story here, uh, notice that God then says that the result of that will be community. Isn't it interesting that after they get the grace, God says, surely, and again, he's speaking to Israel, surely you will summon nations you do not know, and nations you do not know will come running to you. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. This was a prophecy for Israel, uh, but I believe it was fulfilled partially in the church today. And specifically, it's interesting as we've watched Xers who have come to Christ, they were one of the first generations to teach us what multiculturalism really looks like. They were the ones who adopted a lot of kids from overseas. They're the ones who got us more interested in justice and being missional. That's the word that they use than any of us baby boomers ever were. So isn't that an amazing fulfillment of the prophecy? They get community and how community needs to be an integral part of our outreach because they understand grace. And then lastly, all that leads to relationship. I love Isaiah's wrap-up words here. He says, seek, or, yeah, seek the Lord while he may be, say this word with me, found. Say it again, found. And then say one more word with me. Call on him while he is near. Now link those two words together, found and near. Here's all I'd ask you. Wouldn't you like those two words to be the words to describe your relationship with the Lord? That if you were to walk to work tomorrow and say, you know what, he found me. 
And in that sense, I found him. And you know what? If I had to use one word to describe my relationship with God, it would be near. I wake up every morning, and he's near. He's close. You know why? Because I know him, and he knows me. And I love him, and he loves me. See, that's the result of grace. That's the result of living in community rightly, is that we experience God as both found and near. I want to wrap up by telling you an autobiographical story that is meaningful to me and hopefully will be helpful to you. I, I said to you earlier, I'm a middle child, and uh, after years of therapy, comfortable with that. And, uh, and, and, and I want to show you a picture of my, my other siblings, because I, I love them a lot. This was taken on a family vacation a few years ago. Obviously, that's me and my lovely wife, Kim, there on the right. Uh, the gal in the middle is my sister, Katie. She's older, but much smaller than us. And then uh, the only one not smiling here is my brother, Pete. And, uh, and, and, and that's his lovely wife, Lori. And, and, and Pete, I don't know why, he usually is smiling. This is actually not a great picture of him. Pete is one of the nicest guys, and I really mean that. I know that's a superlative, nicest, but he's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. I've never met anybody that didn't like my brother. He's what my wife calls the anti-Jamie. I mean, he's laid back, he's laid back, he's never grouchy, he's just a nice guy. And she, you know, my wife actually has a plaque, I can't believe I'm telling you, my wife actually has a plaque in our front hall that says, be nice or leave. And the day that she put that up, I said, who's that for? And she said, you have to wonder? So I can be kind of grouchy at home, but my brother, like, never is. He's just a nice guy. But Peter also is classically Generation X. I was born in 64. I'm, I'm the consummate baby boomer. My brother is so different than me, and he really epitomizes Generation X. More laid back by nature and come what may, and, and yet highly successful, very digitally industrious. Uh, my brother got a degree in physics from Kenyon College and then a, a degree in computer engineering out at Boulder and, and has done phenomenally well in the digital world. And yet early on, being a recipient of postmodernism, now don't miss this, he was also extremely skeptical of anything non-material. We were all raised, my brother, my sister, and I, in a rather intellectual and, and more naturalist home. We didn't go to church very often, but... Even after I became a Christian and tried to talk to Peter about spiritual things, it was just like, again, I was talking to a scientist, and, and he wasn't interested or really warm to those things. And, you know, I was a, just a brat of a baby boomer, especially as a new Christian. I, I bugged everybody about Jesus, and I didn't do it in the right way. And so I'd, I sent Peter notes saying, you know, you should be interested in Jesus because hell is a long time to burn, you know, and things like that. And <laughs> he didn't respond very well to that. And... And I can still remember in 1987 when he was getting married and I was in seminary and I was a year away from marrying Kim and I'm, I'm in his wedding and I'm walking down the aisle and I grabbed the four laws and I said, last chance before you get married. And he's like, leave me alone. And, and, and yet, you know, it's interesting. I, I argue, and this is from autobiographical uh, experience, you know, that, that Gen Xers, again, they're not an institution, they're not all that, but, but don't ever underestimate their spirituality. And many times we see spirituality kick in when, when somebody has kids. I'll never forget the call I got in 1994. My brother had moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he's lived ever since, working with a boutique uh, software firm. And uh, he, he had just, a, I think one kid at that time, maybe two, and, and, and his kids were real young, little babies. And, um, and he said to me, he called me in Detroit, I was a pastor there, and he said, I need to find a church. 
I was like, wow, really? He said, well, not for me, for my kid. He goes, you know, because they need religion, and you're about the only religious guy I know. And I'm like, oh, well, you're in Grand Rapids. You're going to meet a lot of religious people. But I thought, you know, let me help you with this. So I, I drove to Detroit. I've told some of you this story, but it really was an amazing story. I drove to Detroit, and here's the biggest mistake I made. I found the best, most successful, largest boomer church I could to take my Gen X brother to. One of the things you learn about Gen X as you get to know them is that they're also one of the first generations, and I want to say this nicely because I'm not going to be critical at all in this series of any generation, but they're one of the first generations that were highly protective of their children. My generation, and certainly my dad's generation, was like, put them in the nursery, they'll stop crying in about three hours. You know, that was their mindset. Whereas my brother's generation, I can remember seeing this coming, was like, oh my God. We used to call Keegan, his firstborn son, Prince Keegan, behind the scenes, because like he was the little prince. And so we go to this church, this big, large boomer church, and we go to the nursery, and it's, it's chaotic. And there's this old lady behind the thing, and she goes, just give me the kid, he'll be fine. <laughs> and my brother looks at me, and he says, my kid ain't going in that room. And I said, it's okay, Pete, it's okay. We'll just go into the worship service with him. True story. We started walking into the sanctuary, this big boomer church, and an usher stopped us and said, we don't allow little children in the sanctuary. My brother looks at me like, what are we going to do now? And then the usher said, I kiss you now. He goes, but we do have a special spot at the back of the sanctuary, the back of the bus. He goes, where there's a, a, a plexiglass screen that you can observe the service through. And so we were, it's true. So we were seated there in the back of this church and my brother's sitting there with his son on his lap, just miserable as miserable could be. And I don't think he heard a word that was said in that service. We get out to the parking lot and I'm trying to, I said, Pete, this is a train wreck. I'm so sorry. I said, I, you know, I'm the associate pastor of my church. I can get another weekend off. I'm gonna come back next week and we're gonna try this again. He looked at me and says, thank you. I'll take it from here. <laughs> and I drove back to Detroit, just so discouraged. True story, about nine months later, I hadn't heard from him in like nine months, he calls me up. And it's the weirdest, most surreal conversation I've ever had with my brother. He called me up and without much introduction, he says, hey, James, did you know that dad doesn't believe in the resurrection? And I said, well, where's that coming from? I said, well, direct answer, yes, I know dad struggles with the resurrection. I said, but why are you saying that? And, and, and I said, do you believe in the resurrection? He said, you know, it's funny, after you left, that wonderful church experience we had, my brother's very sarcastic, because that wonderful church experience we had, he said, I, um, I, I was just surrounded by all these religious people, like Grand Rapids is really religious. And he said, and I just started asking some questions, and there were some guys at work that had this Bible study. Remember I told you about Gen X? Had this Bible study. And they go to this little church just down the road called Ada Bible Church, and he said, just this little church of a few hundred people, and they, they invited me to their Bible study, and he said, uh, I've been asking a lot of questions. And I thought, oh my gosh, I know what your questions are. That's gonna drive those people nuts. And he said, they've answered all my questions and, and they patiently been working through me and I'm reading a book by a guy named Dallas Willard. He goes, you ever heard of Dallas Willard? I'm going, yeah, I've heard of Dallas Willard. And I go, wow. And he goes, and, and, and I think I believe. I said, what do you believe? He said, I think I believe in Jesus. And I said, as the one who was resurrected on the third day, he said, yeah. Over the next 20 years, my brother would stay at that church, and here's the irony of it all. That church became one of the largest megachurches in the nation. <laughs> it's like running 8,000 people to this day, and, 
And, and yet here's what we need to understand about Gen X. My brother isn't impressed with any of that. In fact, if anything, he could take or leave it. He loves the outreach of it and all that, but he teaches in their children's ministry. I get weepy saying this. He, he just loves to tell kids stories about Jesus. This physicist, this scientist who reads Dallas Willard just loves to talk to little kids about Jesus. And he's raised three kids of his own. But one of them I'm getting the privilege of marrying, Prince Keegan. I'm gonna be marrying this, <laughs> this winter. And Keegan met a beautiful Christian girl at Michigan Tech way up in the UP and, and now they're living out, out west here and, and they're getting married and they're gonna start their own Christian family. And then little Margot is just a solid Christian gal and Mia, their adopted children. Remember I told you about Gen X, the, the adopting generation. They adopted a little gal from, from South Korea and they've raised her to know the Lord too. It's a beautiful story. They don't all end this way, but it's a beautiful story of what God does. Now here's my point in telling you all this when a church understands that generation. I have told my brother's pastor, Jeff Mannion, so many times, thank you that you understood my brother. Because I didn't. <laughs> I took him to that big boomer place thinking I'll impress him. Da, 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 da. None of that worked. What my brother was and is longing for is something real, something only Jesus can offer something to be found in the realm of community, something that would give him a missional sense of purpose and meaning in life. And that church helped my brother find that. And as we understand the Gen X around us, we can do the same thing, amen? We can understand the people and the cultures that are even different from us and love them in the way God wants them to be loved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, what you have revealed to us in your word. I thank you for these powerful words to Israel so many years ago that revealed to us grace and community and relationship that you are all about when we come to you for the free gift of eternal life in Christ. And God, I thank you that my little brother Pete has taught me a lot about what it means to understand another generation and to approach them rightly, selflessly, Lord, even in an other-centered way, that tries to understand them and then deliver up Jesus in a way that they can understand. God, help us all to do that. It's so easy to fall into a generational gap. May we not do that here at Scottsdale Bible, but may we understand each other more deeply and richly than we did yesterday. And may we honor and may we bless. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.